Good morning. If you're a guest with us, like Ben said, I'm glad you're here. I'd love to meet you and uh, get to know your family. Uh, we're continuing a series uh, today. In the, we started it last week, and we're going to be hanging out in the book of Philippians for quite a while. But in order to prepare ourselves to walk through this book in the New Testament, we actually are going to uh, begin in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 16, if you have a Bible, is where we're going to continue today. We started there last week. We're going to continue it. And while you're getting there, let me prepare us uh, this way. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life before, but for me, uh, there are times when I'm reading through the Bible and I'm left feeling slightly confused. There are stories that when I'm reading the Bible, they leave me feeling uh, convicted or some even fear as this story is now causing me to look at my own life and evaluate where my heart is at and sometimes just confused as to what my next step will be. I don't know if you can relate to that. One of the stories that creates a mix of fear and conviction in my life is found in your Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. This is the story of Moses having led God's people, the nation of Israel, out of captivity to Egypt. And he's leading them on a journey through a desert, a barren desert land. And this is going to be a long journey. But as you can imagine... Taking a large group of people, any large group of people from point A to point B is difficult, let alone in a barren wasteland of a desert trying to think, where are we going to get resources? My mind immediately goes to the strategic thinking of where do we get the resources necessary to take care of all of these people? And the chief resource that would concern me over all others would be water. How are we going to relieve the heat for these people? How are we going to keep them clean and allow them to bathe and wash themselves? And ultimately, how are we going to get them water so that they don't uh, suffer from dehydration ultimately and die? And so you're thinking as a leader, this is going to be really difficult, knowing at some point things will get hard. Though we're freed from captivity, things seem to continue to be difficult as we journey in the desert. And sure enough, there in chapter 20, things get hard. There's no water, and the people go into panic psycho mode, uh, like many of us would. As soon as we realize we're thirsty and there's nothing to drink, the Israelites start acting like my children, who have told me numerous times that they are starving to death. And I thought, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to you right now. We were at Chick-fil-A two hours ago. Like, you're not, but, but they start freaking out. And so the people are panicking in Numbers chapter 20. And, and he goes, Moses goes to God and says, what do I do? And God gives him a pretty simple instruction there in verse 8. And he says, Moses, just talk to the rock. All I want you to do is speak to the rock. And the rock is going to pour forth water. Now, the way that's written, pour forth water, it means there's going to be so much water. It's not like when you go into your kitchen when you're thirsty from playing in the driveway and you go to the faucet and you just fill up a cup of water. It, that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about there's going to be so much water. It's going to be like the world's biggest fire hydrant, and it's just going to pour out so much water that there's not going to be a single person among the people of Israel that's going to wonder, what about me? Nobody's going to look at the amount of water coming out of this rock and think, uh, what about me, God? I, I want to make sure that I get my portion, and they're not going to feel the need to jump in the line or anything. There's going to be so much water. And Moses, all you have to do is speak to the rock. Well, something happens between when God gives him this instruction and a few verses later in the chapter when the people begin to really put the pressure on Moses. 
And this pressure begins to get a little bit overwhelming, and he wants to lead and do a good job. He wants to be the right kind of leader, and he's trying to be patient, and he's trying to be patient, and he's trying to weather this storm, when all of a sudden, his emotions and their emotions peak, and in a moment of frustration, Moses turns toward the rock and takes that staff, you know, the staff that had turned into a serpent, the one that had become a staff again, that staff that had parted uh, the sea, that same staff, and he strikes the rock, not once, but twice, and the water comes pouring out. And all the people are satisfied. And in that moment, you're thinking, man, what an incredible moment. Moses, though frustrated, still provided for all of the people. And if you were there that day, you'd be saying, man, what an incredible leader. Anybody who was trying to judge his decision-making would have said, man, you provided for all these people. This is uh, dire circumstances. All of the odds stacked against you. And you're going to come through in this moment and lead the people. That's incredible. Everybody was impressed with Moses that day except for God. Because God had given Moses one instruction. Speak to the rock. Don't hit it. Don't use the staff. I'm giving you one way to do this. I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses had not been faithful to what God had called him to. And that lack of faithfulness led to a punishment. And you're reading that and you're thinking, wow, what a harsh punishment. Now Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land with the people. That's a pretty difficult punishment. And the lesson we learn is this, God takes faithfulness really, really seriously. And faithfulness, especially in our world today, is somewhat of a forgotten virtue. Maybe you can relate to me. Just picture this. And uh, you don't have to answer out loud. It'd get weird. But you can just kind of agree or disagree that when, when life is good to me, like when things are going really well, when the money's there in the bank account, when the, the relationships I have are going really well, when my decisions are leading to good outcomes, when I feel like things here at the church and in the office with the staff are going really well, and that everything I'm doing is working out, that's totally okay. We're all good, right? We're all good, all right? We're good. Uh, and, and everything's going good in my life, then faithfulness is easy, right? It's a totally easy thing for me. But you start taking some of that away, primarily for me, the weak point is you take away my ability to control the outcome of a situation, and faithfulness gets really hard. You take one decision I've made, and you make it uh, have a sour outcome. You get one person frustrated with me. For all of the positive things people might say, you get that one negative thing that just sits heavy on your heart, or uh, there's tension in your relationship, there's frustration with all different things. Maybe the money's not there in the bank account. Whatever it is you're going through, you take away some of those, and you add some of those frustrations, and all of a sudden, my faithfulness is really tested, and it gets really difficult. I can relate to what Moses was feeling when the tension and the irritation mount up. And today we're going to study, as we continue in Acts chapter 16, preparing ourselves for Philippians. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to come across another example of what does it mean to really be faithful when things aren't going our way. And so if you remember last week, we started out, Paul and his group of missionaries. Now you have Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, Dr. Luke. You've got Silas and now this new companion, Timothy. They're on this missionary journey, and God has shut the door on much of their plans. Paul had this strategic plan And his goal was to go to Asia. We're going to go to Asia, and we've gathered all the resources. We're ready to go. And God said, no, you're not going to Asia. So we're going to go over here. And God said, no, you're not going to go over here. And then Paul's given this vision, if you remember last week. And in this vision, he sees a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. Please come here. And so they say, we're going to go there. And they arrive in the town of Philippi. And while they're in Philippi, uh, they look for uh, a synagogue, a place where people would come to worship God. 
Now, Philippi being a very uh, rich city with Roman culture, 3,000 Roman soldiers had been placed in Philippi for their retirement. And over time, that entire city became saturated with Rome. Rome was of utmost importance. In fact, it's the only colony that they visited in any of their missionary journeys that Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, identifies as a Roman colony. It was rich with Roman culture. And with all of these retired soldiers, they didn't even have 10 people that feared the Lord, so there was no synagogue. And so Paul and his group find themselves going where they hear that this group of people are praying and and trying to understand what they're reading uh, from their Hebrew Bible. And they go down and they meet a very successful businesswoman named Lydia. They share the gospel with her. They baptize her into Christ. And the church in Philippi is born and begins to meet in Lydia's home. And as Paul's custom, he's going to stay there for a while to disciple these young Christians. And that's where we pick up our story. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 16. As, they were, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination or an evil spirit and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out immediately or that very hour. So Paul, staying put in Philippi, wanting to disciple this young church to get it healthy enough to begin to meet. So this was his custom. Get the church started, teach, admonish these people, teach them God's word, make sure their faith is good and strong, their roots begin to go a little bit deeper, and then he would move on to another city and plant another church. And he would circle back in and connect with these churches, but he wanted to make sure they were healthy enough. So he's there discipling these young Christians. And one day, going down to the place where this group of Christians was going to gather to hear God's word and to pray together, he begins to get followed by this young slave girl. Now, notice that the text describes her as a slave to both an evil spirit and evil human beings. This young girl had an evil spirit inside of her, and then you had evil human beings taking advantage of her slavery to that spirit for their own gain. History tells us what they would have done is taken this young girl and they would have put her on a stool over above a gaseous place in the land where up through a hole in the ground, gases would come up and intoxicate her. Then that evil spirit that was in her, for some reason, was giving her the ability to babble incoherently, seemingly. These slave owners would then interpret what she was saying for paying customers. So you'd come in and you'd pay and she would tell you your future or so you thought. And now she sees Paul and Silas, and she, the evil spirit, recognizes, inside of her, recognizes the God that they're serving as the only true God. And she begins to yell out and scream and really pester them them over and over and over again, day in and day out, causing a scene in a place this is not the kind of attention Paul wanted. He wanted to come in and quietly work with his hands and raise up these Christians and hand off this ministry and kind of move on his way. But she is causing all kinds of attention, all kinds of people paying attention to what Paul's doing. And then Luke gives us, in my mind, maybe in yours, a glimmer of hope for our everyday life and describes Paul as becoming greatly annoyed. I love that. Uh, If Paul can get annoyed, then so can Rob, all right? And so the Apostle Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, turns and rebukes not the girl. He rebukes the evil spirit holding her captive. And in rebuking that evil spirit and casting it out of her, he immediately is rebuking those evil human beings that had held her captive as well. And so he leaves her, leaves her in a place of freedom. 
After days of her irritating him, he leaves her in this place of great freedom. And in Luke describing him as becoming greatly annoyed, I think his irritation was with her being held captive, not with her individually. So he casts out this demon, and note that the, the, landowner, the, the slave owners are going to become greatly annoyed. Look at verse 19. When her owners, they realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and dragging them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So they took them into this place before the magistrates, and then they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. And so they grab them. This is not like your pleasant, hey, guys, come with us. We have a bone to pick with you. They grab them forcefully, dragging them physically into the marketplace. Now, the marketplace would have been the center of social life in Philippi. So now everybody's paying attention. Even the people that didn't know what was going on before with this screaming, annoying girl. Now everybody's focused in on these guys that have come in, and they make some accusations against them. The first accusation is these men are Jews. Now you're thinking that what a big deal. Jews were very common in the first century world. But the moment they say these men are Jews, what they're doing is bringing attention to the fact that we are in a Roman colony. And Jews and Romans don't worship the same God. Which normally would have been fine if you keep the peace, which is the second accusation. And they are causing an uproar in our city. They are disturbing our city with customs that are not good for us Romans to practice. What they're saying in that moment is that they're disturbing the peace. Well, for the Romans, one of the number one policies they had that they enforced over all of public life was you can kind of do whatever you want to do, pursue whatever hedonistic passions you want to pursue, whatever pleasure you want, as long as you keep the peace. But you start disturbing the peace, and we're going to make an example out of you. Keep the peace. That was the motto. Keep the peace. And so now with the accusation that they're not keeping the peace, and they're not keeping the peace because of their religious practices that they're trying to impose on the rest of us. So now, verse 22, the crowd joins in. So the crowd hears these accusations. They get all riled up, and they join in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates order them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So at this point, Paul and Silas have absolutely no chance to make it through this. You see, once the crowd joined in, things got crazy. Do you remember another time in your Bible where an accusation was made against somebody that wasn't true and when the crowd got into it and started screaming for a conviction to be made, the Roman authorities caved under the pressure of the crowd? See, when Jesus was crucified, it looks very similar to here in Philippi. The crowd joins in, they get loud, they get excited, they're screaming, and the pressure for the Roman authorities to make a very quick decision becomes so much that they overlook their own laws that will come back to bite them later on. They order them to be beaten with rods. Now, these rods would have been as thick as a billy club, as long as a broom handle. And he says they're severely flogged. Now, we can read over that pretty easily and kind of lose sight of the severity of the beating. These two were beaten within an inch of their lives beaten severely in lots of pain, broken bones potentially, uh, broken skin, open wounds. Now we know from Luke's account in the book of Acts, which we'll study next year as a church, that Paul had experienced beatings like this before. He had experienced this type of a beating, but for Silas, he'd never experienced pain like this in his life. 
So they're beaten. Then they go to the jailer, and the jailer is told, you need to put them in this prison in such a way that they cannot be heard and continue to disturb the peace. And this is on you. So now that jailer feels this pressure. If I mess up, they're going to kill me. And so what does he do? He decides to take Paul and Silas and put them in the maximum security ward of the prison, if you will, which in that day would have been underground. So they would have been placed underground in a prison cell, a prison cell with no windows, no place to go to the restroom, no food, no water. And the goal was to have forgotten them there. But to make sure they couldn't cause any trouble, the text tells us that they were fastened into the stocks. And you've heard us talk about this before here at New Hope, but that would have been an intentional thing to create a maximum amount of pain on them. So now Paul and Silas, remember though, Paul, just a week earlier, had no clue he'd be in Philippi. Remember, he wanted to go to Asia. Now look where he finds himself. In a prison cell, the stocks would have been, there would have been bars that would have gone from the floor to the ceiling, lined up in front of where they would have been placed. So now, beaten and injured, Paul and Silas are placed in a seated position. Their feet, each foot, each wrist, would have been chained to these bars in an awkward position so as to create the maximum amount of pressure on their joints and their bones. Now, I don't know about you, but when I sleep at night, and my wife can attest to this, I move around a lot. I can lay in one position before my shoulder starts to hurt and i got to move, and I just move around a lot. The thought of being held in one position against my will for an extended period of time is excruciating to think about, let alone experience, after already being beaten. So they're held in these awkward, frustrated positions. Now think about their situation. Humiliated, embarrassed, unjustly convicted, unjustly accused, chained up uncomfortably, beaten within an inch of their lives. And in anybody else's eyes, they could have responded with screaming and yelling and frustration, get your uh, wrist loose so you can punch a wall, and anger and frustration and disappointment. And no one would have blamed them. They could have screamed out against the Roman political structure. They could have screamed out against the authorities. They could have expressed themselves with anger, frustration, and disappointment. And again, nobody would have blamed them. But how is it that they respond? If we look at verse 25, it tells us this. Luke tells us that about midnight that same night after experiencing everything we just described, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. The text literally says, and listening closely, listening to every single word they were praying and singing. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind with all of the odds stacked against them with physical pain that many of us may not even be able to endure, they worshiped God. They were singing. They were praying. Maybe they were prayers and songs of lament. I I don't know, but one thing is very clear, that the focus of their singing was purely on God, not on their circumstances. And the inmates were listening to them. Why? Because picture a prison. Many television shows nowadays give us an inside look into what prison life is like. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen one of those shows. And I've never watched any kind of a documentary where the top playlist is Caleb. Where they're naturally singing and worshiping the Lord in the midst of their situations, let alone a dungeon prison cell in a Roman culture. See, these prisoners weren't used to hearing people sing songs of hope and eternity and grace and joy. They're not used to hearing that type of language in this situation. The songs they were used to hearing were anything but worship. So they listened. They listened carefully. 
because there was something about that message that just didn't make sense. And that caused me to get to thinking, what is the purpose? I wonder if we understand, church, if we really understand the purpose of our gathering to sing songs of worship. Why we come together. Do you understand that there is such a rich evangelistic power to our singing that causes a lost world to listen? They begin to listen because it doesn't make sense that the life that they experience outside of our gathering would not lead someone logically to singing the songs that we gather and sing on a weekly basis. And so, because of that, the idea that we would dumb down our worship or accommodate our worship to make it more entertaining and comfortable is completely lost on me. It's lost on me. I think we miss it when we try to make our church experience, our gathering, so familiar to a lost world that they could come into a place like this and say, oh, this is no different than my day-to-day life. I understand everything going on here. Nothing's different. It would break my heart if somebody would say, my experience at New Hope was that their number one concern was making me comfortable. This is hard to say in a culture that we live in. Instead, though, my hope would be that we, who belong to the Lord, would be so genuine, so genuine in our singing and praising God that those who would still be prisoners to the evil one would hear what we were singing and it would cause some confusion enough for them to want to listen in closely. And ponder, how can you respond to life? Singing the songs that you sing together. How can you respond? This is why Ben, this morning, told you the testimony behind the song he picked that got him through dark seasons of his life and Carter the same way. Because these songs have this power to transform. And when we gather, we should be singing because the only object of our singing should be God, not whether or not everyone around us is comfortable And again, I know this isn't a popular thing to say out loud, but there's a power that comes when the church is focused on God when we sing. And that power is to create a wrestling match between the Holy Spirit and our lost friends. And we should not be so distracted by that wrestling match that we fail to have an encounter with God when we gather and sing together. That doesn't mean you don't do things with excellence, but it does mean that the genuineness of our worship is of utmost importance. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the message of the cross, what we sing about and proclaim, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are outside of Christ, it doesn't make sense to them. But to those of us being saved, it's the power of God in our lives. This is why we gather and sing. And my fear, my fear is that we have churches filled with people who are entertained by the gospel who have not responded to it. And so, though it's confusing at times, our response should be a genuine faithfulness to our Creator when we're singing. Singing out the goodness of our God. And in the confusion of those who are far from Him, they might ask, how is it that you can sing that? And we would respond, it's because we have all we need in Christ. Do you know Jesus? And we, collectively, as ministers of the Gospel, would begin to disciple them. And that they would ultimately respond to Jesus. Because this is exactly what happens in Philippi. They're singing these songs in this prison cell. 
After being beaten, everybody knows what happened to these guys, and they're thrown in the cell, everything's stacked against them, and instead of focusing on their circumstances, they just worship. And they bring their attention and focus to God, and God does something powerful in that prison. Look at what happens. Verse 26, suddenly there was a violent earthquake, and the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors, they flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw this, prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And doing that would have been a far less painful death than what the Romans would have done to him. But Paul shouted out to him, don't do this. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Why on earth were they all still there? I mean, if I'm held in a position like they're held in after being beaten, and I'm given a moment of relief and an opportunity for escape, I'm gone. And yet, I think what happened in that worship service in that prison not only affected those who did not yet know the Lord, but what it did to Paul and Silas' heart is it refocused them on the mission of God. And it allowed them to see beyond their circumstances to the goodness of God and that he would work despite their pain. So when the chains came loose, instead of running, they looked for opportunity. And they began to share the gospel. Verse 29, the jailer calls for the lights. He rushes in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Guys, I don't know why you didn't leave, but I heard the songs you were singing and the prayers you were praying, and I want what you have. How do I get what you have? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. They then spoke the word of the Lord to him and all of the others in his house. So they said, Hey, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's walk you through what that means to respond to the gospel. We want you to respond to the good news of Jesus. That's what you need to do. Now let us sit with you and explain it to you. How did that come about? Because in the midst of their darkest moment, they worshipped. And those songs were confusing to the prisoners and to the jailer. But it did something in their heart to have intrigue enough to say, I want what you have. When my life is as dark as that dungeon is, I want to be able to sing like you were singing. How do I do that? So they laid out the gospel for him, verse, 34, or verse 33. At that very hour of the night, in the middle of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized into Christ. And I think what a paradox. He washes their physical wounds as they introduce him to the one who washes their spiritual wounds. Verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so what's typically customary in, in, in Eastern, Middle Eastern homes is a level of hospitality that is often foreign to us as Americans. It goes beyond what we're used to. And so he sets a table before them and they prepared a full meal for them. No doubt in my mind, Paul led them through their very first experience of communion. Seated around that table after having just become Christians in the middle of the night saying, let's, let's come around the table. And can you imagine the difference between that table and the prison cell, just a few hours of God working powerfully through worship, the hopelessness of the prison, and now the joy around the table as they partook together, the laughter, the fun, the experience, the vision for what the church in Philippi would then become, an incredible experience. And so two things come from this text that I just want to reiterate to us. The first lesson that is impressed on my heart as we get ready to study this incredible letter is what Paul modeled for us. And the first thing he modeled is this. God has to. He must be more than your hobby. You see, for so many people, God's an add-on to our life. 
He helps us accomplish our goals. It feels really good to say I'm a Christian. And he becomes a hobby. But where will your hobby be in the dungeon seasons of your life? It's not going to help you through the pain and the suffering. But for Paul, for Paul, God was much more than just a hobby that he did. The rest of Acts 16 tells us that the Romans realized the mistake that they had made because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. As Roman citizens, they never should have been beaten or thrown in that prison. They were afforded due process. And Paul and Silas never said a word because they knew an entire group of Christians, many of whom were retired Roman soldiers who prized their citizenship, were watching closely. And the moment pain and difficulty was threatened, would they use their citizenship as more important than their faithfulness. And they needed to physically model for the church in Philippi what it meant to suppress your national loyalty and focus on your heavenly loyalty. This brings all kinds of depth to Philippians chapter 3 when Paul says to the church in Philippi, your citizenship is in heaven. Watching Paul go through all of that he went through for the sake of the gospel brings all new meaning to our calendar coffee cup favorite verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not about making sure we have a good Monday. It's about ensuring that God is more than a hobby. Well, the second thing is this. Worship transforms us. When we sing... There's a power that takes place that goes beyond anything a stage could produce. Back in 2006, uh, right before our wedding, three months before our wedding, my wife and I flew up from Florida here to Indianapolis. Um, Many of you, I don't know if you know this, her dad is still on staff with us, but he was the preacher here uh, for 30 years in the lead minister role before we transitioned and I became the lead minister here. And so this was her home church, and so we were going to get married in this church, and we flew up three months before the wedding. And many of you know this, but uh, during that week, uh, early on in the week, I got a phone call that my mom had died unexpectedly. So I'm a college kid, and I get this call. Now, my mom and I had a pretty rocky relationship over the years. Uh, My dad was killed when I was a young boy, and she made some decisions, and I was angry with her because I thought a lot of the pain of my childhood was due to her poor decision-making. And so she dies, and I'm like, here we go. And everybody begins to voice to me, you are the only Christian in your family. You need to lead. Lead your family through this. You can do this. And so I get on a red eye that night to fly down to Florida. And I had a group of Christians. I'd become a Christian as a senior in high school. And I had this group of people that uh, are still such a near and dear part of my life that uh, brought me to their home before I would go to the home where my family was. And as I'm sitting in their home, I'm sitting at their kitchen table. And this is a house I was very familiar with and I'd spent a lot of time in. And I'm feeling the pressure of having to lead my family through this time. And it began to convince me that maybe I needed to not mourn so that I could lead. And I don't know if you've been there. That was a dark moment for my soul. It's one of the hardest things I've gone through in my life. And I sat at that kitchen table and a song, and I'm not a musical guy, but a song came to my mind and my heart. And it's a song that over the years, as I've followed Jesus, has really ministered to me in the dark seasons of my soul. And the lyrics came rushing into my mind as I looked out their back window at the the deck in the pool. And the lyrics uh, to this song say, in the midst of hearing everyone else's voice, this song came to my mind and it said, and I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. 
child of weakness, just watch and pray. And find in me, not in your own strength, find in me thine all in all. Because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it. He washed it white as snow. And no sooner, I kid you not, when those words came through my mind, I'm looking out at that swimming pool in their backyard, and I'm reminded that one year and one day before that moment sitting at that table, this took place as I baptized my mom into Christ. And that song helped recalibrate my heart to what God was calling me to in that moment. As he reminded me, you are too weak for this. But I've got you. I've got you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've been through. I know a little bit. I want to know more. That's what church is. But I do know this. When we gather to sing and worship, something powerful happens. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to take a moment and sing a song together as we prepare our hearts for communion. And much like the city of Philippi, they gathered around that jailer's table knowing that everything would be different now. Each week we have communion, we can be reminded of that same truth, that because of Jesus, in our lives, everything can be different. Let's pray.